if you would, we are going to begin reading, and, and I'll just forewarn you, today I am reading a lot of Scripture, okay? There's just a lot of Scripture, um, but I hope that it will serve you to do so. But I want to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 2, which seems appropriate given that it's the day of Pentecost that we are celebrating today. The title of this message is Pentecost, and then He has anointed us. And that line comes from this text in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I think I said chapter 2, but verses 21 and 22, where we read, uh, the New International Version reads this way, Now it is God who makes both us and firm in Christ, which is the word meaning Messiah or anointed one. Christ is the one anointed, the coming king. He's anointed as king over God's people. He has anointed, note the repetition of the root word there, he's the anointed one, he has anointed you, set his seal, or us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, in truth, my message today is about that verse. But I've got a lot of scripture to read so that when we get to that verse, we understand what it is. So it's really what we're going to talk about at the end, but we're going to fill in the meaning of it as we walk through the text today. So if you would, now read with me in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read a good portion of that setting today. So Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. Again, I'll be reading from the New International Version of the Bible. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were saying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation or every people under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native, in our native t- language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some of them, however, or some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters. I I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's his human name. Jesus from this town called Nazareth. Was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the uh, realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, note the repetition of that greeting. Fellow Israelites. I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what has come, what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it exalted to the right hand of God he has received from the father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear for David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet therefore let all Israel Be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, help us to comprehend what what has taken place because of Pentecost. And how it calls us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. I am going to grab my phone, not because I'm expecting a call, but because um, it's the only clock I have right now, uh, so that I know where, I'm, where I am with regard to time. Um, in 1883, on a small uninhabited island in Indonesia called Krakatoa, The sound of a rushing mighty wind was heard 3,000 miles away, and the sound waves are said to have gone around the world seven times. It was a volcanic explosion said to have been 10,000 times stronger than the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. Not only did it kill over 36,000 people, it significantly changed the very shape of that island, And because the sun was blocked by the ash, darkening the skies, listen, sun being darkened, 
the Earth's average temperature dropped one and a half degrees for five years. The events of Pentecost were an eruption of their own kind. With the sound of a rushing mighty wind and what appeared to be flames of fire coming to rest on each one. So radical a change that in biblical description the sun is being turned to darkness and the moon to blood. In biblical language, the sun and moon govern day and night, according to Genesis 1.16. In other words, they govern all time, day and night. And for them to lose their light means that the whole structure of the universe is being turned upside down. The times they are a-changing is what that means. And what does this turning upside down mean for us? Today, as I've noted, is Pentecost Sunday. Why is that important for us? David Garland rightly notes that the events of Pentecost were for these first Christians, quote, evidence of the Spirit's presence and the inauguration of the new covenant. The inauguration of the new covenant. That is the, if you had to pick one single most significant thing about Pentecost, that is it. It is the inauguration of the new covenant. And the beginning, therefore, you could add, of the church. Pentecost is the story of our birth. It's our birthday, the church. It's more important than our anniversary as a church that we celebrate every April. Way more important than that. That that pales in comparison to this. This is our beginning. It's about our identity. It is our story. How we... Christians, as a people, came into being. Pentecost is about the fulfillment of a promise, the the restoration of a kingdom, and the anointing of a people. It's about the fulfillment of a promise, the restoration of a kingdom, and the anointing of a people. So we're going to look at those today. It's about how it changes everything. To capture the depth of Pentecost would take a month of Sunday, so we definitely wouldn't run out of material if we did a message on it every year for the next 30 years. In Pentecost neglect, or the neglect of focusing on it and teaching it and understanding it, pastors are left with what it means to be a part of their particular church. So we we do focus, oh, what does it mean to be in this church? It becomes very myopic, to be honest with you. We want to focus on what it means to be the church, which is a far bigger meaning for the record. We'll explore Pentecost under three headings. Pentecost fulfills a promise. Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. Pentecost and our anointing. So let's begin with that first heading. Pentecost fulfills a promise. Pentecost fulfills the promise of the Father, a promise of a transformed people. It fulfills the promise of the Father, which is a promise of a transformed people people. Jesus referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit as what the Father promised, or the gift my Father promised. We see this in Luke 24, verse 46 through 49. By the way, I'm going to refer a lot to both Luke and the book of Acts today, because same author, it's one story, and there's connections between these. So that's why I'm using Luke as my gospel of reference throughout this message. 
It, it reads there in Luke 24, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations or all peoples, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus connects the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the promise of the Father. Now, what was this promise of the Father, and where might we find such a promise? If we were listening to Jesus, and he makes reference to a promise having been given by the Father, I'm going to suggest that odds are we would look in the Old Testament to find that promise. Amen? And of course we do. And I want you to notice as we read through some of these promises from the prophets in the Old Testament, I want you to notice that how each of these was a promise of how God would restore Israel after the exile into come bring them back together but make them a changed people. Look, for instance, at Ezekiel 11. And in verse 17, uh, it begins, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered or exiled, And I will give you back the land of Israel again, verse 19. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And, and the ver- it, this one begins in verse 22, actually, where it says, Therefore say to the Israelites, and then in verse 26, in the middle of what he's saying to the Israelites, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then in Joel uh, chapter 2, the one we read from that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. And here he's speaking to the people of Zion in context. And he says, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people, or literally all flesh. Not, not just certain kinds of flesh. Not rich flesh versus poor flesh, or, or male flesh versus female flesh. No, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's talking about your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Old and young, both. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then, of course, Jeremiah 31 Verses 31 through 33, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But again, note the reference, house of Israel, house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The coming of the Spirit who writes the law in our hearts is the inauguration of the new covenant itself. Pentecost isn't about some other secondary thing. It's about the thing, the new covenant. 
that forms us as the people of God. So what does this say about us? Well, much more than I could cover today, but I'm going to at least focus on some of the important things it says about us. If the promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, is a promise to the Israelites to make them new, then Pentecost is the restoration of Israel from exile. Which makes sense. What do we read there in Acts chapter 2? There were Jews from every nation on earth brought together at that festival that are now hearing that message of restoration, of the Christ coming. On that first Pentecost, as we call it, of course they had had many Pentecost celebrations before that, but none of them had the Holy Spirit pouring out on them. But on that particular Pentecost, what we think of as the first Pentecost, the Jewish people from the nations of the world were gathered and became the first expression of the church on Pentecost. It's a picture of God regathering His scattered people and restoring His kingdom, Israel. Remember the apostles' question of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus did not answer as many suspect. No, that isn't what I'm doing. Rather, he said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Notice, capital city, Judea, and Samaria, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel. Judea and Samaria, southern and northern kingdoms, historical geography. Okay, And to the ends of the earth. He's restoring Israel is what he's talking about. The kingdom to Israel. But it's going to go beyond the boundaries of its old form. In other words, he's answering them by saying this. You don't need to know when, you need to know how. You don't need to know when I'm restoring the kingdom to Israel. You need to know how I'm restoring the kingdom to Israel. I'm going to do it when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you become witnesses of me from the capital city to the historic boundaries of the kingdom of Israel to the ends of the earth. That's what he's saying to them that day. And and then, of course, he tells them to wait, anticipating the day of Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power that will establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit is the means that God will use to establish Christ's kingdom on earth. This is why Paul could say in Ephesians, For through Him we both have access to the Father, meaning both Jews and Gentiles. We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's Pentecost. Consequently, you, you you Ephesian Gentiles, or we could say today, looking at all of us, You Floridian Gentiles, most of you, I don't know, there might be some natural Jews in here, but by by and large will be Floridian Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, which household are God's people? What are we citizens of, if not Israel? What that's the house of Israel. That's who, what he's restoring by his spirit according to the promises of the Father in Ezekiel and in, in Isaiah. We didn't read those. Jeremiah, Joel. 
then therefore who are we? The people of God. We are God's people, the covenant people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Galatians 3.28. We are the restored kingdom of Israel made up of Jews and Gentiles who come to the Father through Jesus Christ, who are the chosen people in Christ. That's who we are. And as the chosen people, God is looking to bless all peoples on earth through, through us. Those who bless us will be blessed, according to Genesis 12, verse 3. And as the chosen people, we are called to, quote, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, according to Genesis 18, verse 19. We are God's chosen people. It's what Ephesians 1, verse 4 is talking about. It says when, that you have been chosen in Christ. Since the promise of the Father has been given to us, it means we can pray confidently for the Lord to give us and keep on giving us a heart of flesh to replace our hearts of stone so that we might truly love those before us. You see, I cannot love my neighbor as myself with a stony heart. I need the Spirit, the Pentecost Spirit, to dwell in me, to give me a softened heart, a heart of flesh. It's absolutely necessary. And that leads to our second heading, which is Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. Now remember, in the Gospels, Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. He is the king of the kingdom. Now pay attention in the verses I'm about to read to the connections between the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Just As we read these, just note the connection between the kingdom of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit because it's relevant for us. Luke 1. This is Gabriel speaking to Mary in verse, starting in verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. It's a term of royal position in their day. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. In other words, he's talking about what? The kingdom. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, this son you're going to have will be the Messiah, the anointed one to be the king over God's people. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. How will it be? The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, which is another term for the Messiah. So notice how both Luke and the book of Acts start. They both begin, chapter 1 and, and, and Luke. You'll receive power when the uh, uh, our, our chapter 1 Luke is what we just read. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how the kingdom will be established. And in Acts chapter 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The kingdom comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke chapter 3. And this is, of course, the baptism of John. John's out there baptizing people. And the people were waiting expectantly. We read starting in verse uh, 15 of Luke 3. And we're all wondering... In their hearts, if John might possibly be the Messiah, the one anointed to be God's king over Israel. That's, again, when you read Messiah, think coming king of 
Israel. That's what they were wondering if he was. Anointed one. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I, in other words, I'm not him, one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he, that's the one who's the Messiah, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then jumping down to verse 21, when all the peoples were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So there's a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit, just like there was on Pentecost, though there it was wind and fire. Here it's the bodily form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son. Now last week we talked about the Psalms, and we're in the book of Jonah as our regular series. And you might remember that, that Jonah's whole prayer came right out of the book of Psalms. Well, guess where this phrase comes from? You are my son. Psalm. Anyone want to give me the psalm number? Two. Who, who had that? Right there. That's right, Jessica. Psalm two. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Which the whole New Testament refers to as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's when God says that to Jesus. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So here, in his baptism... Jesus is Christed. He's anointed. That's what that means. If Christ is the anointed one, he's anointed. How? By the Holy Spirit. That's what anointing refers to. In the Old Testament, they would use oil to anoint, but that was symbolic of the Spirit of God. Well, he's getting anointed with the literal Spirit of God, coming down in physical manifestation. What was he anointed for? Well, prophet, priest, and king, yes, predominantly here as the king over God's people, Israel. And then notice in Luke 4, the next thing he did, first he goes into the wilderness and is tested, but then he begins the ministry for which he's been anointed. And what's the first thing he says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There's anointing. Because he has anointed me, Creo, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what is the relationship between the Spirit's power and the kingdom of God? Well, a couple of things we can notice from what we've read so far, just to kind of back up and summarize. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming upon Mary was to make possible for God's anointed king, Jesus, to come in order that there would be a kingdom. The purpose of the Spirit coming upon Jesus was to anoint him as Messiah, as as it were, king, to preach good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. In other words, to proclaim God's kingdom rule through the Messiah. That's why the Spirit came upon him. And when the Spirit came on Jesus, the gospel is preached in Luke 4. And the poor and needy are met with the rescue or the salvation of the king in that text. Now this is interestingly what we also see in Acts chapter 2. First in Acts 1, verse 6 through 8, we, we, as we read earlier, they, they gather around him. They ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know about the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Again, note the connection between kingdom and Holy Spirit. Consistent throughout Luke's writings. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, while being witnesses literally means speaking testimony, giving testimony, like in a court of law, on behalf of somebody or something, that's what a witness does. So literally, it's verbal. We cannot assume that its meaning here is not also metaphorical, that they are to bear witness by their lives and not just their words. And we'll see why that becomes the case by the end of Acts chapter 2. So, for example, immediately following the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, three things occur. Everyone gathered speaks the wonders of God in the languages of the foreign crowd. Second, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel or the good news. The, the euangelion, the gospel. And third, those who, uh, with, those who with possessions share generously and the poor have their needs met at the end of chapter 2. So you get to Acts chapter 2. What do you have? Everybody acts as if their possessions are not their own. And they're giving to each other. Now, if that is not a testimony of the life of Christ, then nothing in that chapter is. Because that requires the power of the Holy Spirit, and I would argue in a greater degree than speaking in tongues or preaching the gospel. And by the way the church has behaved since then, I'd argue that that's also proof of that point. (laughs) Because we need the Spirit's power to do that. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit was required for all three to occur. People speaking in languages they don't know, but others do. Peter preaching the gospel with conviction. And the poor having their needs met by the generosity of those who have more. All of those require the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And all of those gave witness to the resurrection life of Jesus. The life of Christ who calls us to follow him and lay down our lives. Take up our cross with hope of resurrection because he has been raised. Each of these bears witness to the truth of Christ's reign. Each bears witness to Christ's resurrection. I mean, Jesus, who after being anointed by the Spirit, preaches and ministers to the poor. And then the church preaches and ministers to the poor. That's what the church does. And that's what Pentecost is empowering us to do. And they go together. You can't have one without the other. So why is the Holy Spirit's power necessary? Well... I'd say the Holy Spirit's power is necessary so that we can be, not not so that we can be the center of attention, rather, or that we can make a name for ourselves, or even that we can do great exploits. That's not why we get the power of the Holy Spirit. No, it is so that Christ can work through His people to establish His kingdom on earth. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming, is so that Christ can work through His people to establish His kingdom on the earth. And it's why we pray, your kingdom come. It is so that the poor will hear the good news and the captives and the oppressed will be set free. That is why the Holy Spirit's power is necessary. Apart from the Spirit's power, humans cannot participate in Christ's rule on the earth. And that is the purpose for which we were made, is to participate in His rule on the earth. And apart from the Spirit's power, we cannot participate in that. Our hearts of stone will not let us participate in His rule. We require hearts of flesh. We need a a heart transplant by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Pentecost was and is necessary for the restoration of the kingdom of God. You see, I would, I, I would conjecture, and I can only conjecture this. I can't tell you that this is exactly true, though I think I can make a case that it's at least part of it. That when the, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem and that they're gathered every day praying at the temple while they're waiting, according to the uh, end of the book of, of Luke, they go to the temple, they gather, they pray, they wait, they wait, they wait until Pentecost comes. I would argue that they were praying, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And that the Spirit's coming is an answer to the prayer, your kingdom come. Because that is how the kingdom is going to be restored. And so we continue to pray, your kingdom come. And trust that the Lord will empower us by His Spirit to be the people who can bear witness both in speech and in deed to the work of Christ to the reign of Christ, that people might look on and recognize that. I'm getting ahead of myself momentarily. So Pentecost was and is necessary for the restoration of the kingdom. And then finally, my third point, Pentecost and our anointing. Pentecost and our anointing. We read in that original text, He has anointed us. Let's read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you, so Paul and his team and the Corinthians, Stand firm in Christ, the Christos, the anointed king, the anointed one. He creo us, he, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You see, he, he said, he, he, he put his seal of ownership on us, just like Jesus when he was baptized. What did it say? This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's what God does for us when we are baptized in the Spirit. When we come into Christ, He sets His seal of ownership. He's saying, you are my child, whom I love. And as we allow the Spirit to transform our lives, He says, with you I am well pleased. Amen? We were anointed on Pentecost as the church, as the people of God, by the Spirit. Now, to say that we are anointed by the Spirit is to say, listen, that we are a prophetic people, we are a priestly people, and we are the king's people, agents of the king. Three kinds of people were anointed in the Old Testament, and I'll give them in the sequence in which they appear. In Leviticus, the Aaronic priests, those of Aaron's family, were anointed into office. In Samuel, Samuel anoints the one God chose to be king. First it was Saul, then it was David, over his people. And of course, when David's promised that he'll always have an heir, each of them was to be anointed to be king. And so the son of David that was to come was to be uh, the anointed one. Ultimately, that became an idea, concept of this coming Messiah. A coming anointed one. And then finally in Kings we have Elisha who is anointed as a prophet. So he is the one with double measure if you recall. Now Christ, he is the anointed one. He was anointed by the Spirit to be prophet, priest, and king. He is the one greater than Elijah the prophet, greater than Aaron the priest, and greater than David as king. But let me be clear about some things I'm not saying when I say that we are anointed. To say that we are a prophetic people, for instance, does not mean that we are all prophets. That's not what I mean. 
Rather, together, we speak and demonstrate a message on behalf of God. We, the people of God, that is who is baptized by the Spirit, and we have been baptized, and so we become a prophetic people. In all our various gifts, we speak and demonstrate a message from God to the world, to one another as well. Neither are we all priests because of the Holy Spirit. We are a priesthood. Nowhere does it say you are a priest or you are a priest or you are a priest. We are a priesthood. As a people, we mediate God to the world. We cannot accomplish this task on our own, but joined together. And thirdly, what I'm not saying, being, being agents of the king, it's not about being royalty or, you know, I'm a king's kid. You know, who live with power and privilege. That's not the kind of royalty that Christ somehow advocates. Christ turns kingship, as we understand it, completely on its head. Completely on its head. We are servants of the king who took off his cloak and wrapped himself in a towel and stooped down and washed our dirty feet. And then says, go and do likewise. We have, so, so now I'll get into what I do mean. I've kind of explained what I'm not talking about, but let's talk about what I, what I do mean. We, we have been empowered to be witnesses. Each of these three things, a prophetic people, a priestly people, and agents of the king, each of these three speaks to what it means to be witnesses. This is what Cabin Rowe, you've heard me quote Cabin Rowe on this many times, so I'll just do it again here. Repetition's the seed of learning, you know. Um, he says, it's what he means when he says that we are to be, quote, a thriving, thriving communities that bear witness to the inbreaking reign of God. And that is our goal, is to be, quote, Christian communities that are a picture of and testament to God's reign. That's a prophetic people. A people who is a picture of God's reign. Leslie Newbigin describes this prophetic church differently with completely different concepts. But they're all equally as good. He calls the church to become a hermeneutic of the gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with that word hermeneutic, I'll explain it real quick. A hermeneutic, if it's in literature, it's just a way of how do you interpret this literature. You have a way of interpreting. In theology, how do we interpret the Bible or hermeneutics? What is the method for rightly versus wrongly interpreting Scripture? Well, Newbigin is arguing that the world, when they hear the gospel, needs a method of interpreting that gospel, and that the only proper method for the world to interpret the gospel is the congregation of believers that gathers near them. That they, could, they, they ought to be able to look at the church and understand the gospel. Sadly, I'm going to guess that you, like me, would suspect that that's, we're, we're, we're falling short in that department. But that ought to change. Newbigin says it this way, quote, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible, he asked, that the gospel should be credible, believable, that, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, 
the only hermeneutic of the gospel, the only way to rightly interpret the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Why do we need Pentecost? In order to believe it and live by it. Amen? You can't live the gospel apart from the Spirit's empowering. I cannot take up my cross and follow Jesus apart from the Spirit's empowering. I cannot consider my possessions not my own apart from the Spirit's empowering. To live by the cross, to live as the disciples did in Acts chapter 2, requires the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It requires a heart of flesh replacing our stony hearts. And that is being witnesses. It's what we have been anointed for. The Spirit anointing is also that deposit that guarantees what is to come, which is what makes possible dying to ourselves. I will never die to myself if I do not have the promise of resurrection. It's got to be a guarantee of what is to come. Amen? None of us would lay down our lives apart from that guarantee. And the Spirit is that down payment guaranteeing the outcome. The the only hermeneutic of the gospel, and I hope you're with me now in understanding that term, the only proper mechanism for interpreting the gospel by the world. The only way to make the gospel understandable to a lost world is not a better presentation of its principles. It's not as if if I just had the right course on how to present the gospel to people, we could become more effective. No. I mean, that's fine. That's good. Take those. It won't make a dent in this apart from what I'm about to say. The only thing The only hermeneutic, the only way to make it understandable to a lost world is a congregation that believes it and lives by it. And for that, we need the Spirit's power. How does the Spirit, His coming and writing the law in our hearts, how does it change our friendships? How does it change our relationships? How does it change our marriages? our parenting, our public engagement. I am so tempted right now to... I'm going to get in trouble. Listen. I am not commenting on what I think about the Second Amendment, but I will comment on what I think about Christians who think that's part of the Gospel. No, it's not. The Spirit did not come and give us power so that we could stand up and brag about our guns in the face of death. And if we think that's what it's about, we've messed up. And sadly right now, many Christians are identified by the world as being people who want to stick their guns in the faces of people who are grieving the death of children in school. I am saying nothing about whether gun laws are the answer. I'm simply saying that is not the Christian response to that issue. I better get back to preaching and stop meddling. How does the Spirit writing the law in our hearts change our public engagement? How does it change our work? How does it change how we use our resources of time, money, and talent? 
Can the world look at our lives and understand what following Jesus to the cross means? That's the goal. And that's why we need the Spirit's power. And that's why the Spirit came ultimately on Pentecost because that is the kingdom of God manifest. We are anointed. He has anointed us, we read in 2 Corinthians 1. We are anointed to be a priesthood mediating the gospel to the world. We are anointed to act as a prophetic people bearing witness to the life of Christ in word and deed. And we are anointed to be agents of the anointed one, the King, Christ, manifesting his kingdom in our lives together. None of us can do this alone. And even together we do it spottily. But if we do it together, by the grace of God, we actually can make a difference. Amen? He has anointed us. Now we need to go forth in that anointing. Amen? Amen. Uh, just a couple of words in closing. The, the Bible's storyline, some have suggested, might be summarized as, its, as the king and its, his kingdom story. So it begins... Just three, three simple faces. If you want to summarize the Bible's storyline, I think you can probably get it down to three. Theocracy. God ruling over his people. You see that in the Garden of Eden. Of course, it was rejected. But then you see it as those people are gathered and taken out of Egypt and God is their king up until the time when they reject God as king and ask for a human king. And that then leads to the monarchy. So you have theocracy and then you have monarchy. And the monarchy is a picture uh, a shadow at best at times of God's coming kingdom. And at worst, just like all the other earthly kingdoms, it's just horrible. <laughs> and then you have the one that that monarchy kept pointing to, which is the third phase, Christocracy, which begins with the gospel and it's the rest of the, <laughs> rest of the story. It's Christ's rule and reign over his people. And, and that's what we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Or as I like to put it, for myself, your kingdom come as we do your will in earth as it is in heaven. Because that, how his, that is how his kingdom is manifest. So that's the, the storyline, if you will. Theocracy, which we all rejected. Monarchy, which was at best a way of pointing to what God was wanting to do. And finally, the, the rule of God in Christocracy. The question is for each of us, where are you in that story? Are you still in that place where you're rejecting God's rule over your life? Or are you now in a place where you go, no, I want God's rule, but you think it's coming in some earthly kingdom, some earthly way that will only in the long run end up being just as bad as other earthly kingdoms? Or are you coming as one who is submitting yourself to the reign of Christ, a reign that is very upside down, that takes off its outer cloak and puts on a towel to wash the, feet of, the dirty feet of, of those who would follow? The ones who would go and Meet the poor with justice and a willingness to engage them as we read in the Beatitudes. And I won't, won't go, dive off into that, but it's an area I love to talk about. Where are you in that story? If you are living in rebellion against God's King, today is the day of salvation. Amnesty is being offered. But for those who know Christ, the question for us is, are we living as agents of the King? Are we living as a part of a prophetic people, a priestly people, a royal people? 
who serve a very different kind of king and in a very different kind of kingdom. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your kingdom and may we afresh be filled with your Spirit's power, that transforming power, that power that allows us and enables the mute to speak. Yes and amen, we need to speak the gospel. And it also allows the lame to walk. We who have been unable to do your will, now walking in your ways. May both of those be true in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.